This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Louise Kennedy, I am so happy to see your face. Louise was one of our Discover Prize finalists this year. Her first novel, Trespasses, is just out. It is our November Discover Pick of the Month. And you guys, this book. This book, Louise, I'm so happy to see you. Would you please introduce yourself and Trespasses to listeners? Yes. Uh, okay, so my name is Louise Kennedy. Um, I uh, was born and reared in Belfast, um, near, in a town near Belfast, and I now live in the northwest of Ireland. And uh, Trespasses is my first novel. It's set mm-hmm. in the north of Ireland, in, uh, near Belfast, um, in 1975. And it's about a young uh, Catholic teacher called Cushla Lavery, uh, who lives in a predominantly Protestant town. Um, those things shouldn't matter, but in, in those days, um, they did. And at that time, they did. She uh, helps out in the bar that her family owns. One night, a man walks in, a mysterious man walks in, <laughs> and... Uh, they develop a relationship, which is, uh, you know, uh, which is probably a very bad idea on on lots of fronts. Um, but but she uh, persists anyway. Um, she also becomes very close to a little boy called Davy, who is one of her pupils in her day job as a parent teacher. And Kushla's mama. We will get to mama in a minute, but Kushla does not have the easiest life, but she also doesn't have the worst life. She just has her life, and mm-hmm. it's the circumstances around her that make things really complicated. I mean, in the States, we sort of know this period in history as the Troubles. I mean, I grew up outside of Boston, so I feel like I have a little bit of sort of Mm -hmm. moving knowledge of of what was happening. And Mm -hmm. here's Kushla, though. She's in her early 20s. She kind of doesn't know what she doesn't know. She's really charming. And she's really messy. She is kind of messy. Um, I, I think that, um, that that actually things are a little worse than that because she's also very well-intentioned and sometimes that's disastrous. She sort of blunders along and tries to help people and tries to keep all the balls in the air. And I think that that is um, really difficult, um, you know, in that time and that place. Um, I don't know if you'd like me to explain some of the context for those times. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, it, yeah, it's funny because people have said to me, oh, you've written a book of historical fiction. And I'm like, what? It, it was like during my lifetime when I was in history. But anyway, so I guess that's because I'm 55. But um, in the late 60s, um, in the northern corner of Ireland, um, a 25 year period, really, of, um, of you know, fairly vicious, um, largely sectarian um, and political violence um, erupted. Um, it originated with civil, uh, civil rights marches and then got completely out of hand. And um, that resulted in very quickly, there was a very, uh, the British government sent in troops and very quickly there was a very heavy security presence. That's an element of the novel because the town that Kushla lives in is, um, is is what's called a garrison town. There's a very large um, British army barracks besides there. I suppose because of the demographic of, of the town that Kushla lives in, um, her family has a bar where most of the regulars, they're Catholics, most of the regulars are, are Protestants. And, um, uh, you know, I, again, very quickly um, in, in, in in that time that became known as the as the Troubles, the targets became very blurred and, and, and it really meant that, um, you, you know, that just ordinary ordinary people ended up um, being being targets of paramilitary violence uh, and sometimes state violence as well. And um, so Kush's brother manages the bar. Her father died a couple of years ago and um, he really has to tread a very uh, fine line so as not to offend the largely Protestant, you know, unionist, loyalist um, regulars who, who come into the bar and also the soldiers and police who drink there. I suppose that automatically sets up quite a lot of, of tension. Kushla's brother too is very much 
a man of his time, and he doesn't really see her as anything beyond someone who ought to get married and have lots of babies. And he's kind of like, well, I need your help at the bar, so just be useful and whatnot, mm-hmm. but really uh, hurry up and do the thing you're supposed to do, because I really can't keep watch over you and my own. He's married with children, and he's... Mm-hmm. So we've got this sort of element. I mean, the 70s were not that long ago, and yet in some ways... They were a long time ago. Yeah, I really wanted to show that because I think um, I, I think that, I mean, I really remember, you know, from television and just from mm-hmm. some general things, the very, very casual but really pervasive sexism that there was. And, yeah, um, you right. know, the people brushed up and called it chauvinism as if because it's got a French word, it's a bit cute or something. And I think that, you know, Cushion is subjected to that, even though she's educated uh, and her brother isn't. Um, he doesn't yeah. take her seriously. And really, he just wants her to, um, you know, as you say, come in, throw out a few pints at the customers and smile at them and then look after their mother, who is kind of um, falling apart. Yeah. Um, I think as well, with regards to Kushla, I think it was an interesting time for women in Ireland because, you know, as a Catholic woman in Ireland at that time, um, it it would have been expected that she would stay at home, remain a virgin until uh, some lovely Catholic man came Mm -hmm. along and and married her. And, (laughs) you know, that she'd be sort of uh, very pure and Irish and everything. Um, but also it's the 70s and also she's been to university. So she um, she knows there's another world out there. And um, um, and I suppose that, you know, her kind of burgeoning uh, sexuality is is really quite um, problematic in those days. So, you know, I, I kind of wanted to show that too. Was Kushla the first character who showed up for you? Or did you know that you wanted to think about the period and talk about the period first? Or did you need her to sort of focus the novel before um, you could Michael actually turned up first, interestingly, oh, because okay. the very, yeah, Kusha has appeared in various guises and things that I've written before. And yeah. she appeared in a short story that I wrote. She appeared in a play that I wrote a few years uh-huh. ago, a play okay. that's very, a very, not a very good play uh, that I will never see the light of day. But um, I guess I was just kind of exploring um, character without knowing it at all. And in fact, I, I had totally forgotten about the play until a couple of days ago. So Michael actually appeared first. I think part of the reason for that is that um, the very first thing that I wrote before I even knew I was writing a novel that, that found its way into Trekkie is, is the um, is the prologue. The book opens um 40 years into the fu- into the future. So it's like 2015 and Kushla's um, in, in an art gallery. Uh, and that was because I had done a master's in creative writing at Belfast. And one day um, in, in our life writing module, one of the exercises was to take ourselves next door into the Ulster Museum and find a piece of art or an exhibit that we'd like to write about. I didn't really write about anything specific, but um, it, it was at the end of an exhibition called The Art of the Troubles. And um, that had been a little controversial as these things very often are in post-conflict. Uh, societies. Some people felt that it had gone too far. Other people felt that it hadn't gone far enough. It just made me think about how maybe art could be used to say things that are really unsayable in, in a place where people are obsessed with language and obsessed with identity and where language is is so problematic. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I'd started to think about this character perhaps had been, you know, represented in a piece of, of art. But um, yeah, I, I, it took me a while then to, to kind of figure out what that piece is going to be. And since this is airing on your pub date, I'm going to just drop a little editorial note right here and just say, Michael becomes Kushla's lover. And he mm. is complicated. Okay. Complicated, this dude. The way you write about language, and especially he sort of brings, Michael brings Kushla into his circle by saying, can you teach us how to speak Irish? Mm-hmm. And so she comes ostensibly to give language classes to a very tight circle of his friends, mm-hmm. some of whom are kind of like, this is great. And some of whom are giving her a hairy eyeball and saying, mm-hmm. why are you here? Yeah. You think you're, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And watching all of those relationships play out, because part of what you're talking about too in this novel is class. Mm-hmm. 
Sure I'm really interested in that. Come from money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really interested in that because I think that in a, in a society that's already divided along particular lines, in, in the north of Ireland in those days, there was fairly systemic sectarianism where one section of the population uh, was largely doing a lot better than the other because they had advantages in terms of access to employment and housing and various other things. Uh, so that would be the, you know, Roughly speaking, Protestants, um, you know, it, it would probably coincide with a few. I think the term used now is Protestant Unionist Loyalist because it sort of encompasses more things. I suppose now because maybe the religion is less important. But Kushner belongs to the other community, which is the Catholic community. And, and that's the community that is disadvantaged in lots of ways. However, there is a class system that operates within communities like that. And Kushner's family are middle class. Um, in that they have a bar. I think it's sort of interesting that the Catholic middle class really was made up of uh, publicans, you know, people uh, and wine and spirit merchants, people who sold booze, um, bookies, you know, people who provided gambling services and um, a few doctors and lawyers. And part of the reason for that is that um, these were businesses that upstanding kind of Protestant establishment didn't want to be involved in. So those were the right. businesses that were left. So Kushner's family, they have a bar, I didn't do it on purpose, but I think that maybe subconsciously I was introducing Davy's family because his family really are the very bottom of, of the rung. You know, the father has no work. They live in um, in a majority Protestant, fairly rough um, estate, housing estate. And um, he's bullied at school. You know, he's almost untouchable. And I think that, the, you know, there's very often a child like that in in every class and um, every classroom, should I say. So, um, yeah, I, I was just interested in what would happen if, you know, Kush is aware that she's um, that she's kind of top of the rung in her community. But what would happen if you take her out of there and then place her with these people who are who actually are a bit posh and who, who genuinely are middle class? It's not just her coming of age, but safety and mm-hmm. her search for safety is a really big piece of her story and you know here she is trying to help Davy, this kid in her, in her class mm-hmm. and you know Michael's swanning around and he's quite mm-hmm. fabulous and she's you know mooning for him mm-hmm. but she doesn't know how to keep other people safe and she certainly can't keep herself safe because it's all out of her hands and she's mm-hmm. really I mean she's young enough to think well I can do things and I can help and I and in some cases she actually makes things worse fully unintentionally mm-hmm. fully, fully unintentionally mm-hmm. so can we talk about balancing story and character? I mean, do you just let your characters sort of do what they need to do? Or are you yeah, saying, okay, I think, where are we um, going? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not a plotter or a planner. Um, right. There's a significant moment in the book, um, and I knew that that was going to happen. Um, yep. I didn't quite know how we, how I was going to get there. Also, the relationship with Davy and his family um, ended up becoming more important than I envisaged. Um, and I think as well, I had to do things with with Michael's character because in the early draft, he was way too matinee idol, and I had to make him <laughs> a bit. So I think that's why, um, you know, the you know the the pipe that he smoked that seemed very dignified started to get replaced by you know cigarette after cigarette, and um, you know there are a lot of empty bottles of whiskey around the place, and Kush was not the first. Um, you know, relationship that he's had outside of his marriage. So I had to mess him up a little bit just, um, you know, for, for lots of reasons. Yeah, I, I didn't really think about it. I, I think I just kept rising and rising and rising and hoping that it was going to be OK in the end. And um, and it was quite a long time before I showed it to, uh, to my editors. And um, I, I suppose really what then had to be done was that um, there were at one point there were two characters who did the job of Jerry, you know, uh, Kushla's friend, Jerry, her fellow teacher. Um, Kushla in, in previous drafts had a friend as well. So um, 
but they were pre- performing the, the the same function. And Jerry had better lines and was actually more likable. So anyway, so the friend was abolished, and and Jerry stayed, and um, and and is probably a fuller character. So yeah, I'm not. I don't. I don't know. I I think I just really very much tried to pay attention to kind of the textures of the world that she lived in, and um, and really thought about um the, the constraints. You know, the, I guess it's a constriction, really. You know, um. And I'm trying to stay within that, and and just hope and hoped that um that it would sort of see its way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 1975. There are people who think that 1968 was sort of is this the only watershed moment mm-hmm. in sort of global history. I mean, there, there was so much happening, especially mm-hmm. in the states, but we certainly weren't alone in that. Mm-hmm. But the 70s are such a wild, weird period mm-hmm. everywhere, and I mean, yeah. we saw. Places like Iran and it just everyone's trying to open yeah. up. I mean, yeah. Vietnam started to peter out. Was it right. 1975 and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, 74, yeah, yeah. 75. Things were happening in Europe. You know, there, there were terror attacks happening in right. Italy. Um, the Basque separatists had been yeah, bombing yeah. all around the place. And um, yeah, things were really quite um, uncertain. I think that maybe the student movements of 68 did yeah. throw a lot of things into, into question. I mean, certainly my experience or my memory of it, um, in, I suppose this is in my own sort of closed little world right. where that things were kind of going mad. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I mean, Munich 72, obviously. Yeah. I mean, there was just so much when I look back on mm-hmm. it, it's it's just, it's kind of an extraordinary moment where everything yeah. is busted. Mm-hmm. Everything's busted and we're all trying to move forward. And Kushla really is so representative of that because she's mm-hmm. just, trying to live she just wants to live her life and that priest at her school and the headmaster <gasps> yeah oh, the priest those dudes, bad dudes bad mm-hmm. bad mm-hmm. bad dudes and obviously also men of their time i mean it's not like they woke up and decided we're going to be you know super we're going to be we're going to be selectively horrible no i i agree that they are men of their time i i think that maybe something happened um particularly in the south of Ireland, um, mm-hmm. uh, which really ended up being a very closed um, theocracy for uh, uh, until relatively recently. But certainly among the Catholic community in the north, um, the priests and bishops had way too much power. And they had power over everything. I also would argue that um, they had power over, um, over kind of women's lives to a huge extent because women went to confession. Um, and, and these um, celibate men were were listening to to all of the the women's kind of secrets, and you know they weren't supposed to use contraception. They, they you know the priests heard all of this, uh, and I think that they really ended up having a huge amount of control over women's lives. And um, certainly, um, as employers, they would have had a lot of control over over Kushla, you know, who she's working in a yeah. school that's slightly outside the state system, you, you know, run by a board of management probably um, of, of the priest and the the school principal, and and probably quite a few other men. And she really keeps hitting well. I mean, Jerry's great. He's great. Jerry's great. I love I'm Jerry. Very, very happy that Jerry yeah. is in Kushla's world. She needed Jerry, really, I think, um, because otherwise she would have been really terribly lonely. And even though he he doesn't understand what um he really he's really quite unaware of of the risks that she's taken with her life right. and, and and the way that she's sort of um stepping outside of um of her remit i suppose um um but he is there he suspects and he is there to support her when um you know when she needs us so yeah he's great and also he he has quite a few good lines i think as yeah well. oh, he totally does he yeah does. many of your characters have very good lines but you know here's the thing though jerry knows that she's crossing lines and mm-hmm. i mean yes he doesn't know the full extent but he knows that there are transgressions happening I, does she know? I mean, outside of Michael, does she know? I mean, she really thinks she's just helping Davy, and this kid needs someone. But she's 
kind of making things worse for him. And Michael's she is really is making Michael's things worse for him. But I think she is doing it with the best of intentions. Oh, but she thinks that, you know, to intervene sometimes and speak to the principal. And really all she's trying to do is to get help. But I think that maybe um, in the course of the of the story, Kushner begins to really understand the extent to which everybody is constrained by their position in life, by their class, you know, by their religion and and so on. And um, and realizes that, um, you know, it isn't just about the violence. There are very sort of strict social structures as well uh, that she can't step outside of. For Kushner to have a relationship with Michael, who is, you know, a lot older, he's a Protestant and... Um, and um, uh, and a barrister and married. You know, these are all lines that that she crosses. Um, you know, for 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 the times. It's not shocking, but it. I would be profoundly uncomfortable living in this kind of situation. There's no separation of public and private in Kushla's mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows mm-hmm. everything. I would lose my mind. <laughs> oh yeah, the small town thing. Absolutely, um, lose my yeah. mind. That is definitely a thing, you know, where she really doesn't have any any privacy at all. And that, to me, is also a signifier of not having any power mm-hmm. and she's obviously not thinking like her brother's not necessarily thinking about power but he has it mm-hmm. and part of me thinks that kushla's mother who is really complicated and very whoa she's messy wow she's messy she has some sort of understanding about power and it's made her very very angry mm-hmm. she has none and mm-hmm. she looks at her daughter and says what do you doing your what do you think you're doing yeah and, and as if you're not going to get away with this if i didn't right. get away with it yeah right i mean mm-hmm. that mother-daughter relationship is certainly not limited to this period in irish mm-hmm. history in any way shape, oh absolutely part. absolutely yeah i think that really with gina i mean again there's a very strong um kind of class and, and possibly a geography issue there as well because um gina kushner's mother Gina's quite young, you know. Gina's in her is in her. She's you know she's fifty odd. She's you know she's she's a young woman. We would consider her to be a, a, a young enough woman. And at one point in the book, Kushner kind of is is you know reflecting on her mother. And um, her mother has this thing that she says, which is, "I married above myself." Mm-hmm. So um, you know within again within this kind of fairly um, you know this this like sub you know subclass I guess of of of, of Catholics in the in the north of Ireland. Kushner's father. Uh, came from a family that had, you know, a few bob. They had money, and 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 Gina was was a good looking girl from a back street who ended up marrying, you know, as she says, marrying above herself. You know, that's all fine when her husband is there and she's swanning around the place and she likes to, you know, put on lipstick and wear a fur coat and she has a relatively nice home. But then her husband dies and just leaves her there, so she doesn't even get to take control of the pub because her son comes in and takes it from her. So she really still doesn't ever have any any agency at all. And um, because she's um, maybe a bit gregarious, they don't like to have her in the pub because they don't want her to drink. They don't want her around. You know, Eamon the Sun doesn't want her around. So really, um, I think she probably has, um, there probably is quite a bit of resentment at Kusha, you know, um, you know, has a a, a job and a, a role outside of, outside of the family business. Is Eamon ashamed of his mother? I sort of felt like he was. I mean, there are a couple of different points that obviously we're, we're going to stay spoiler free, but there are a couple of moments where I was just like, yeah, he's actually really ashamed of his mother. Yeah, I'm sort of interested in that, though, because, um, you know, they are, I, I come from a big Irish family, and there are people, you know, there have been people in my family with, um, with you know, who are problem problem drinkers, and it is extremely difficult for their children. It is mortifying, you know, to have your uh, mother getting a bit flirty, and especially if it's behind a bar that you have to stand mm-hmm. behind all the time, you know, and, um, and, and, and Gina definitely... Um, I think there's maybe something about her too that the thing that made her feel good about herself was was probably her looks. Um, but those are fading. 
and she's kind of lost her position. That's very difficult. And, um, you, you know, I suppose, um, yeah, I suppose her son just doesn't um, doesn't want to see her being um, messy and, and maudlin. He's also a little bit of a snob. <laughs> oh, he's terrible. He's really pretty terrible, but I hope not implausibly <laughs> so, you know? No, not at all. No, no, no. He's exactly who you would expect him to be. And that's kind of the beauty of all of these characters that we're talking about. And we're leaving some folks out, too. but. Mm. Everyone is really organic in who they're supposed to be. I'm just really judgy because I think Eamon should have been a little nicer to his sister, but that's just me. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, that's it. You know, um, yeah, she was probably, I mean, maybe that was like a decision that I made. <laughs> maybe she was having a tough enough time she could have done with a bit of support. But um, I, I, I hope that it was okay that she got that from Jerry. I think so. I mean, again, like just these organic relationships and... I will say the way the story plays out feels very, very sort of inevitable. I mean, there's a little bit of dread, and, and I'm certainly people will figure out. There's a tiny bit of dread as you're reading, but at the same time, Kushla's voice is so great. And yeah, she's messy, but she's, you know, your standard early 20s, like, I'm just going to figure it all out. Yeah, I, I know what I'm doing. I think that's another thing in your 20s. I totally thought I knew what I was doing in my 20s. Oh, same, and, same. I, I, and, I, and I don't know what I'm doing now, so how I thought I knew what I was doing <laughs> then is ridiculous. Because technically our brains don't finish cooking until we're 25. It's that is. So it just gives us this, like, blithe um, optimism or something. I or confidence. Also, you know, yeah. I'm, oh, my 20s. I it, There's plenty of stuff I don't technically remember from my 20s and I'm okay with that. And then there's <laughs> other stuff where I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like how, how do we survive our 20s? That's sort of, know. you know, know, I'm not the only person to think that. And and I was thinking that, you know, in my 30s as well, like, oh, <laughs> how did that just Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> but also I wasn't growing up with a paramilitary presence in my mm. backyard, which, you know, that ups the stakes, absolutely. But at the same time, one of the joys of reading Trespasses is watching Kushla figure out, because she's not necessarily interacting with the bigger British paramilitary forces mm -hmm. unless a specific thing happens. She's just trying to live her life. Yeah, that's the thing. And I think that, um, you know, the other thing, apart from class that I was really interested in was uh, its geography and how mm -hmm. that affected people, depending right. on where they lived. Davy's family lives, a, you know, in the same t little town, but they are, um, um, you know, in a, a housing estate of maybe low employment, low income. You know, his father can't get work really. Well, at, at some point he does get work um, and that mm -hmm. doesn't really work out for him. And um, to put it mildly, they are, you know, subject to harassment in the estate. His brother, you know, his older brother gets a very hard time in particular from, you know, from older boys who are knocking around the place. When Cushion starts to move out of, 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 the, of, the, of the town, she sees things differently you know at one point she goes to a wedding she accompanies Jerry her friend Jerry to a wedding and um and the wedding is raided really quite gratuitously by um by um a British army duck patrol as they were called um with a you know a helicopter over the over the venue this would be in a part of Belfast that's largely kind of Catholic and um uh, which which has a very heavy security presence on the streets and then when she goes to the uh, place where Michael and his friends live it's completely different again you know it's all quite, sort of quite genteel with trees and lovely tall Edwardian houses and things but place does I mean I don't think any of us can ignore how place forms us or even if we want to pretend that place has nothing to do mm -hmm. with who we are mm -hmm. <laughs> totally <laughs> or who we become, yeah. right yeah it's just one of those things 
mm-hmm. you've been living with Kushla for a while. I mean, you said she started as a character in a play and she was mm-hmm. in a short story. I mean, mm-hmm. you've been writing for a while. Mm-hmm. So how long have you been walking around with the story in the back of your brain before you finally put it down on paper? I think that I didn't really know what it, this, I didn't know what the story was, but I think that Kushla possibly has been knocking around. I mean, I, st- I didn't start to write at all until 2014. I hadn't written before that. Right. Um, but right. I think that maybe... Probably in 2015, Kushla made her first appearance towards the end of uh, 2015. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's our girl. (laughs) We have lots of booksellers who are really attached to Kushla. It was really kind of (laughs) great. Getting all of their notes from around the country and everyone just, she was the person that we all sort of latched on to without a doubt. And um, it's funny, you actually answered a couple of questions. I had asked a colleague out in the field for her questions and well, we've covered them, but um, I will say that Sarah said, when I asked her what she wanted me to ask you, she said, um, everything. <laughs> oh, I <love> it. <laughs> but I do, I think it really speaks to the idea that fiction doesn't have to be about the thing down the street. Mm-hmm. There's a universality to Kushla's coming of age and mm-hmm. you know, her relationship with her brother mm-hmm. and her mom and all of that, and just figuring it out and, and just wanting to understand it's yes the circumstances are extreme mm-hmm. but they're kind of not i mean bad boss yeah i agree that there may be not okay so what i think is that um you know maybe the consequences of some of Bush's actions i think that maybe in a society like that when your behavior is considered to be beyond the pale perhaps people think that you ought to be pu- punished for it or these are things that people ought to be punished for you know mm-hmm. yeah um, um, and I suppose that's maybe a moral question or something like that, which I didn't really intend to get into. Like, really, to be honest, I set out to write a, a love story. And the minute I said it in that place at that time, I realized that um, the troubles were going to have to feature very, um, very strongly. And um, I think maybe because, um, you know, there's still lots of people walking around the north of Ireland who are, who are carrying a lot of pain you know, who had lost people. I think mm-hmm. for them, getting justice has been a very unsatisfactory um process and um, you know lots of people still there's a, a dearth of convictions around a, a lot mm-hmm. of the atrocities that happened and um I, I didn't want to hurt anyone and I didn't want um I didn't want to exaggerate and um, so really what I did was um I, I just let, allowed the story to um to evolve I put these right. two people together and started to fling a bit of crap yeah. to see how they react <laughs> and then I tried really hard to make every other aspect of the world that they were in as real as I could remember it right. from when, when I was a child. So the news that, um, you know, when Kushla teaches um, her, her class uh, of seven, eight-year-olds, um, every morning they begin, because uh, it's a wee Catholic school, they begin with a Hail Mary, and then right. um, they do the news. And, you know, in some places that may, but might be about a cat getting stuck up a tree. Because of the place and time that the children live in, they're like little war reporters, and their, their right. language really reflects all of the violence that's going on in the world um, around them. And um, that is how we began our day in school. But there were other things that were real, too, that we weren't, um, you know, we weren't um, totally obsessed. Like we, you know, in the way that Kushta tries to, you know, kind of, you know, find, you know, find herself or, you know, find some kind of truth in her life and help people. We we were interested in, you know, what English premiership um, football team, um, you, you know, the boys used to, you know, kind of banter about that. And, um, you know, we used to watch Charlie's Angels and the, you know, six million dollar man. We did all the things that lots of kids, you know, um, did. It's just that um, we also had this the, these other kinds of um, really um, strange um, and unhelpfully kind of weird circumstances. And also, I suppose we're being brought up by nervous wrecks. 
Like our parents were a complete nervous wreck. You know, generational trauma is real. Yes, yeah. absolutely real. Mm-hmm. And and you know, when your grandparents don't want to talk about it, and your parents don't want to talk about it, and people yeah. disappear in the night. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, as you said, there are a lot mm-hmm. of atrocities. People disappeared yeah. in the night. Yeah. People disappeared exactly. from their front steps first mm-hmm. thing in the morning. People yeah. disappeared. Intellectually, the idea could be shocking, but the reality is it's been really well documented. Like, yeah. We know all of this mm-hmm. is true. Mm-hmm. And so here's Kushla coming up in this world, and Gina is not fully prepared to raise children. It's just what she was supposed to do. Oh, yeah, totally. And she, yeah, she's a bit, um, you know, she wouldn't be the warmest of mothers, you know. Um, <laughs> she kind of stands there. She stands there like a rod, you know, when 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 her children show her affection and stuff. But she's just not, um, you know, I guess it's not her fault. God knows. I mean, I I, I, I suppose, and, and thinking about Gina, I have an idea of what sort of background that she might have come from, you know, yeah. that was maybe very difficult with a lot of drinking mm-hmm. and a bit of violence and stuff. You know, yeah. who knows? But, um, but yeah, definitely Gina isn't, you know, you know, this kind of charming, um, little cute Irish mother, you know, with um with rosy cheeks and an apron. She's oh, far yeah. from it. Yeah. yeah, she's she's not tatting lace in the corner. She's no <laughs> she's she's Gina. Exactly. She's Gina. Yeah. But can we talk about the revision process too? Because obviously you sat with this book for a while, you worked through it, you knew mm-hmm. who some of the characters were. Clearly you have a great sense of time and place in this particular mm-hmm context but we get through the first draft where are we who sees it first what happens next okay yeah that's uh, that's kind of interesting so um i think that um you know i i didn't realize that i was trying to get this c- character kushla to, to kind of work for me uh-huh. um okay but um you know there was this there was this girl um usually um hanging around a bar sometime in the 70s you know who appeared in a few things and then um towards the end of 2018 i thought sure i might try to write a novel part of that was because i had undertaken a phd and part of it um uh, it was quite academic and i don't have undergrad english and partly to avoid having to write up and um, learn what a footnote was and um, and write up all of that stuff um i i thought should i write a novel because at least that way i won't be idle you know i still i'll still be working i made a playlist and i I wrote a few notes. I mean, I probably had about 10, maybe five or 10,000 words of, um, but it wasn't really anything uh, coherent. It wasn't, it wasn't story. It was just notes. And then in March, 2019, I had a diagnosis for malignant melanoma. I think partly to avoid uh, thinking about whether I might be dying or not. um, I thought, okay, I might not have 20 or 25 years to write Mm -hmm. a novel or to walk around writing a novel that I just needed to try and get something down. And um, this was before I, I had a deal with a publisher or anything. And I, I didn't know if anybody would ever even see it, but I just wanted to see if I could actually write a long, a long thing, a long story. And um, I set myself a target of about a thousand words a day. And um, I didn't make it to the laptop every day, but very often I did. And it meant that right. within three months I had kind of a draft. So the next stage then was that... Um, I fixed up about 10,000 words of it and wrote a synopsis and that was sold to um, to my publisher. The second draft actually was an insane amount of work because um, the first one was done so quickly that part of it was in bullet points and the tent kept changing and some of the minor characters, their, their names were changing and <laughs> some of the characters, their religion was changing, which is really problematic in, um, in a novel set in a place where people are obsessed with religious identity. Um, so that took about four months to fix, four or five months to fix. And then after that, I just worked through it draft by draft. So I think it was possibly a draft four or five that I even showed it to my agent. 
she's a really good editor because she works in publishing for a long time so she helped me and then we showed it to my editor in the UK and then my brilliant editor in um, in Riverheads came in a little bit later on because the book was sold a bit later and she was brilliant towards the end especially um, she was really great Becky in Riverhead yeah I'm um, a fan yeah. I don't know I just kept pushing through draft after draft and it mm-hmm. got tighter and tighter and when um, you say tighter and tighter are you talking about story or are you talking about your characters I mean or I'm talking about story, whole. really. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that things uh, in the very early draft, it was quite loose. And um, I had written some scenes and they were probably entertaining enough scenes. But really, all they were doing was revealing character. They weren't actually right. progressing okay. the story. So some of those had to come out. There were other things that had to be part of the setup. And those had to be kind of front loaded. You know, they had to be moved up to the front. So there were a few mm-hmm. things like that. So. I got very few um, line edits. I think I'm so terrified. I don't know. I don't really get that many line edits, um, but there were structural edits. Yeah. Are you a linear writer or are you just sort of doing what you need to do in the moment and then figuring out how it all comes With together? Trespasses, it was completely linear, but normally um, it might not always be like that. And um, The short stories that I write, uh, it, it sort of depends. Um, I guess it's different for everyone, but, you know, I would, um, when I approach short stories, it would very often be to... Um, to really inch my way along through it. And then when I open it, I go back and edit. So um, that in itself can be problematic because it can be quite hard to move forward. So maybe it's just about me being afraid to move forward because very often I'd have only a vague idea of what the story is about. Um, <laughs> but you can end up, you know, you can go too far with it with those sorts yeah. of edits at the front. Um, so you sort of have to back off a little bit. Otherwise, it could be quite kind of tight and airless. So with this, it was a complete, a completely different approach because I just thought if I inch my way through a novel, it'll take me 90 years or I won't be here, you know. So, um, yeah, it was a different approach. And the story collection sold in the UK, but has it, mm-hmm. are you, is the story collection coming out in the US? It is after this book. Yeah. Okay. Riverhead, um, yeah. Riverhead okay. will publish that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really want to read those stories. Oh, do you? Do you like short stories? I really I love do. them. I do. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And, you know, we're in a moment now, and I say this all the time and regular listeners will know this, but if you're standing online, you can read a short story on your phone. And I think as well that um, you could take quite a bit of time over a short story. You can go back. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. I think it should really suit us. Yeah. Short stories done well are extraordinary. And you can fit an entire novel in 20 pages. Well, you totally you can. can. Right? And, um, and also, I mean, I think probably some of the most memorable things I've ever um, I've, I've ever read have been short stories. But it's just like a moment where you go, oh, um, and you just never forget it. Um, I think that, um, that uh, with a novel, you have a lot more license, really. It's a bigger canvas, absolutely, and you can yeah. play with time more. I mean, you can certainly play you with totally time can. And you, and you it can does require cast. quite a big, big machinery, but mm-hmm. um, but you know, you can sort of keep that going and then go back and um, and fix it. Whereas, um, I, I think a lot of it with a short story almost is about tone that you have to set that up really, really soon and try and hold your nerve with that all the way to the end. Um, I think that that a lot of the power of a short story can be in that, and then obviously as well, you have to um. You know, the images, have to, you have to be very selective about um, yeah. images. You can't kind of go mad um, with it as well, you know, because they become, in something so short, they become very symbolic. Um, so you've got to be careful. And so I, I think it's great training. It, um, it requires a lot of discipline, but really great training. It's totally worth it. It's mm-hmm. absolutely, because also you have to work with a smaller cast. Yeah. yeah oh, totally, yeah. You can't, you can't get away with the cast of thousands and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, by any means. Yeah, I think that was a mistake that maybe I made in kind of the early days in, in the writing group that I joined that um, uh-huh. that uh, I was probably trying to the novel into about five pages or something, you know, millions of characters. And so I was confused, never mind any poor, poor person who happens to have to read it. 
Have you started working on the next thing? I mean, that is. I have. I have started uh, working on the next thing. Yeah. Um. So it is going to be one of the characters from one of my short stories. Um. Who I feel I have unfinished business with, and um, <laughs> she's um she's a pretty heedless young one in in the short story, and okay. um and I think that she that that aspect of her character isn't going to change an awful lot as she gets older. Um, okay. And um, yeah, she's going to make things very hard for herself. Oh, I would really like to meet her. I like the heedless ones. <laughs> the heedless ones are always fun to read. Yeah. It's, not, it's not great for them, but it's really fun No, it's not, but it's, um, yeah, hopefully it's going it's, it's to make good fiction. And speaking of reading, can we talk about who you are as a reader? Who are some of the regulars that you reach for? Who are some of the writers who've helped make you Louise Kennedy, novelist and short story writer? What's I think, yeah, so I think that probably a writer who is, I think, disgracefully out of print, who is a huge influence on my writing, uh, both in the short stories and for Trespasses, is um, a writer from Belfast called Anne Devlin. Okay. And um, I think there's still copies of her book available um, secondhand, you know, they're uh, around the place. So Faber and Faber in London published a collection of her short stories in, I think, 1985, and it was called The Way Paver. The stories are set in Belfast in the 80s. And there's just something about, you know, as I said earlier, the tone and um, yeah, yeah. her, her use of dialogue. There is tremendous menace kind of suggested somehow, you know, without anything explicit or without you ever seeing anything terrible. And um, there's one particular story in there uh, in that collection. It's called Naming the Names that um, I don't know how many times I've read it. There's one point in, in the story. And every time I read it, it puts the heart across me I just can't I was still like um, but it's done so subtly so I think that's great um, another writer who I really 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 loved reading um, for a long time I was a bookseller briefly um, for a couple of years in the early 90s okay and um, I really loved Ellen Gilchrist yeah that's a name I, I think she's great minute, but yeah she yeah is very very subtle I think she's great um, because I think there's a really brutal you know savage humour there as well yeah, yeah, and then also yeah, yeah. sort of sudden bursts of, of violence almost you know um, and, and also um, I think that she does very interesting things with um, well maybe with, with class or just with this world that she builds with these families and the cast of characters who come in and out I really quite like that yeah it's been a while since I've read her I mean yeah. in the 90s she was sort of someone that we all read even mm-hmm. dudes even mm. dudes read Ellen Gilchrist mm. it was one of those things where and you know I was a baby bookseller at that point too. yeah so we were you know reading everything we could get our hands mm-hmm. on but yeah I have not heard her name in a really long time yeah she's great I had to do some uh, research for my PhD a couple of years ago uh, about three years ago um uh, in an archive in the University of uh, Arkansas in Fayetteville and uh, apparently oh, yeah, yeah. she has a position there I think she's quite an elderly, yeah. she's quite elderly now, but I, I did have to confess that I did um, spend, you know, a week wandering around Fayetteville, sort of uh, vainly hoping that I'd, I'd bump into um, Ellen Gilchrist or maybe Lucinda Williams, who had an association with the place. <laughs> but yeah, sadly not. Um, I just met some very nice, helpful librarians. That was it. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone needs helpful librarians, especially yeah. when you're doing research. What was your PhD in again? So my PhD, it was a creative writing PhD, ah, um, but, okay. but about half of it was um, I had to, basically I had to produce some creative work in response to a thesis. And mine was to yeah. create a biography of a very forgotten Irish writer okay. called Nora Holt, okay. who um, um, she published like 27, 28 books. Um she was born in the, I think it was 1898 and died in 1985. And when, oh, when, wow. when her books were being published, uh, she was published by Heinemann 
Um, yeah. She was reviewed um, in the Telegraph, the Times, all of these papers. And yet her, her obituary in the Irish Times, you know, a Dublin paper, like the city of her birth, was about that length. And she was virtually out of print. She produced 28 books. They're not all masterpieces. How could they mm-hmm. be? Um, but there's one particular collection of short stories, which I think is unbelievable. Um, it's called Poor Women. Um, and it is available. I think it was reissued with um, quite an academic introduction um, a couple of years ago. But yeah, Nora Holt, Poor Women. Um, absolutely shocking stuff. It was published in 1928. And Holt's preoccupation really was with women who she described as unsheltered. Really, she was interested in um, how women stayed respectable. Women who weren't under the protection of a man in a country that really had just come out of, of Victorian times, you know. And yeah. Up until uh, up until World War uh, One, really, Britain might as well have been Victorian. It had changed very oh, little yeah. from the 19th century. Um, but then women found themselves, you know, um, there was a slight shortage of men after the war, not as much as they suggest, really. Like, in actual fact, it was in particular classes, but um, yeah. there was a bit of a shortage of men and and. A lot of widows, um, things had really kind of been thrown up in the air. And there were a lot of women who were trying to support themselves. And just read about how very difficult it is to stay respectable without a man looking for you. Yeah, looking, looking, not looking for you, looking after you. So, yeah. That's radical for 1928. Though. Oh, yeah. One of the women is a prostitute and she's got mm. the flu. And, um, you know, I'm saying prostitute because this is the word that she would have used. But, you know, yeah, she's yeah. a sex worker. She's got the flu. Um, but she can't pay her rent and her landlady is this very unpleasant woman who's banging on the door and um, she, you know the woman literally has no food so she has to take to the streets in London and um, you know she's older than the 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 other um, women who are on the streets and um, you know parts of it are kind of funny but it's completely devastating you know um, yeah really interesting stuff and there's a through line too to Kushla and Gina mm-hmm. in trespasses I mean yeah. they're essentially trying to figure out what the world has for them. Mm-hmm. Kushla, I was very pleased with the way you set her up and I'm, I'm just going to let people hit the end of this book and enjoy it. But I was, I was quite pleased to know that let's just say she's okay. She's she is okay. okay. I, she I, is think that, okay. I think that's yeah. fair, but it, it, I was, I was very pleasantly. I had a moment where I was like, Oh no, is this girl's life going to be tragedy after tragedy? After mm-hmm. Tragedy kind of thing. Cause again, the circumstances of, her childhood and her youth, they're all very extreme. And she's got, you know, her only surviving parent is a hand. The mess. And yeah. Yeah. You've written a very hopeful book. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad to hear it because, um, I don't know, people just find a way to live, really, don't they? Um, yeah. And I wanted that for Kushla too, that, um, yeah. that no matter what, you know, that no matter what happens in life, really, you know, people um, people do try and find a way to, to deal with things and to keep going. And um, yeah, I wanted some joy for her. Do you miss these characters now that you're done? Now I did kind of miss Kushla. And I did find that after, I think maybe for a month or so after um, publication, I um, I, I found myself um, going back to the playlist a lot. I made a playlist to go with yeah, Trespasses. Yeah. So um, yeah, so the song I think I most associate with Kushla is um, the Steve Hardy and Cockney Rebel song, Come and See Me, Make Me Smile. <laughs> so um, yeah. I did that. That's sort of my happy song. So I um and I think it's kind of cushions as well. So even even though you know when it appears in the um when the song is mentioned in the book, it's kind of at a funny moment. Um, yeah, but um yeah, I played that a lot very loudly for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> it's really excellent. Mm. Okay, Louise. Before I let you go, because I knew this would happen, we are bumping up on our okay. <laughs> on our allotted time. But one of the things I really appreciated as a reader, and, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show, I grew up outside of Boston. I'm clear on a lot of the history that is happening in this period. 
for various and sundry reasons. But one of the things I really appreciated as a reader is that I never felt like I was reading a polemic. I never felt like you were trying to make me eat my cultural vegetables or my historical vegetables. Mm-hmm. You were telling me a story about a girl, and I was, re- and I, she is a girl. I'm sorry, she's a young woman, but she's she's very young. But for you as the writer, what's that balancing act like? Um, I think um, it, it isn't something that I did deliberately. What I wanted to do was to tell the truth, and and um, and really, and I really, really, really believe this is that the tr- the period that they called the troubles was terrible for everybody. It was terrible for uh, the young uh, men and women who who uh, got involved uh, in paramilitary violence or as perpetrators. It was terrible for people who ended up in prison. It was terrible for the police. It was terrible for the British soldiers who were very young who were sent to a place. To um to to do some very hand heavy handed um sort of patrolling and um it, it was terrible for the people who they pulled out of their beds. I just think it was terrible for everybody. And I really wanted to not to show that. I think what I wanted to do was to tell the truth. And I hope that that came across. You know, I've read um I've read in front of um audiences um that would be quite one way or the other, and they've all come up to me and said, "Oh my God, um it just reminded me of what it was like. It was just awful." It really was awful. But yes, it was so normal. There's a lot of truth in the very specific details that you put in, mm-hmm. but there's mm-hmm. also a lot of universal truth, mm-hmm. just the humanity of your characters. And I think that's really important to remember that it isn't the place, of course, informs the time, of course, mm-hmm. informs. But Kushla and Michael and Gina and Eamon, and they are who they are because mm-hmm. they're also part of this time. And yeah, and I think, you know, conflict has a tendency to coarsen people. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to show that not everybody gets, you know, that kind of corrupts it and that, you know, some people still try to, most people try, try to stay sort of true to themselves and, and to behave decently and just to find a way to, to you know, love and, and live and, and, and be happy. And you did all of those things in Trespasses. Louise Kennedy, thank you so much. Trespasses is out now. It's our November Discover Pick of the Month. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend some books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Trespasses. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And I'm Madison, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. So we've got a couple of great books to go over. Madison, you want to go ahead and jump right in? Yes, I do. I'm so excited to recommend this. This is one of my top books of the year, and it is The Wolfden by Elodie Harper. So when you pick it up, it is centered in Pompeii, but it's one of the many books about Pompeii that does not deal with the volcano exploding. It actually centers around this Greek woman who was sold into slavery, and then she finds herself in a brothel. And how I pitch this is that Amara, the main character, really is spending the entire book trying to girl boss her way out of said brothel. And the journey she goes on, the things she encounters, how she handles them, I think is what you really want to see in a strong female lead. And you finally get that in this book. One of my favorite relationships, I will have to say, is her relationship with her brothel boss. Because you're like, oh, they could have romanticized it. They could have done this, but they don't. Not at all. There isn't like love there, but there's a strange tension that is a mix of slight respect. I think Amara has slight respect for him from like a business standpoint. But there's also a mix of pure hatred that you just like want to like dig your teeth into. And that is so amazing. I cannot recommend this book enough. And that is The Wolf Den by Elodie Harper. 
Fantastic pick. Uh, such a great book. The sequel is out now. I'm very stoked to jump into that one as well. I chose a book that takes place in a similar time period to Trespasses. It's uh, mid to late 80s in Ireland. And the book is Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. Uh, this is a novella. Uh, it's pretty short, but I think that the story and its themes will stick with the reader for quite a while. Um, it's also a book that I think should be read during the winter. The main character is Bill Furlong. He is a coal merchant, and he his life is pretty good. Uh, he's got a stable job. He's able to provide for his wife and his five children. And he does his best to help out the members of his community uh, that is starting to see some erosion uh, from the troubles. While he is out on the delivery at the local uh, convent, he discovers something enraging, horrific. I don't want to really give too many details about what he discovers, but needless to say, it causes him to really rethink his choices and reevaluate and take stock in his own worth and the worth of his family and his community. Don't let that fool you. This is not a somber book. This is a book that is inspiring and has really strong themes of charity and kindness and community. Again, I definitely recommend reading this with a mug of hot something. Um, it does have some Christmas uh, leanings going on, but I think anybody who needs to warm up when it's cold outside uh, can really get something wonderful out of Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. That is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.